<laughs> when God when God made us, when God formed you in his image and likeness, he brought Adam to life with a breath, right? Uh, you you and I were made alive by divine CPR. The Bible says God breathed into man the breath of life. Man became a living soul. But what God breathed into us was his spirit. Say, where was the creation of the spirit? After created, it was always there. God, who has always existed, gave us, shared with us his spirits. Why the Bible says we are partakers of his divine nature. It is his spirit that is the core of our communion, really, our gathering. Without his spirit, we don't, we don't live. And the Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. So God birthed us by a breath, the breath of his spirit. But it doesn't mean that you and I uh, were put into a headlock where we were stuck in this position of going, God, I, I, I'm going to follow and serve you all my days. God gave us choices. He gave us freedom. He has such a high value for freedom. He's the comforter. He's not the controller. And so when Adam and Eve fell... We lost something. Remember, God said, eat of this tree, you'll surely die. And it happened. Something happened where we lost something in that moment. And what we lost was an awareness of our breath, an awareness of the spirit, an awareness of the very thing that makes us alive. And it's not that we didn't have access to it. It's that we lived in a perpetual state of rebellious rejection against it. And then God comes along to man, and what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to reconnect us to the Spirit. He's wanting to restore us to that reconciled union and relationship. And so Israel, I mean, God is like giving promises in, in, to, to Abraham. He's like, let's make a covenant together. Abraham, by the way, he's all he is. He's not a holy guy. He's not doing all things right. He just happens to be the only guy alive at the time that wants to hang out with God. God's looking for friends. Like, anybody, anybody want to be on a friend on Facebook? Nobody friends God except for Abraham, right? And Abraham has issues. You don't think Abraham has issues? Abraham and God are walking out in the desert one night. God's just communing with Abraham, and Abraham has no kids, and he's really old, and his body doesn't work like it used to. And he's uh, thinking, you know, when I die, that's it. That's the end of my family line. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. It'll be an everlasting covenant. It's going to be amazing. And Abraham goes, it'll be a short everlasting covenant because I'm going to be dead soon and I got no kids. And God says to Abraham, yeah, look at the stars. Look at the stars. Imagine the desert and the stars at night. My son lives out in the Mojave Desert. We were just there a few nights ago. A little different than this. And, uh, and uh, at night, I stepped outside and I could not believe the sky. And suddenly I could hear the conversation between God and Abraham as Abraham, an old childless man, decides to go with God's illustration as God says, look into the sky and see, these are your children. And Abraham's like, wow, that's crazy because you should have told me this when I was 21 because things don't work like they used to, God. And so Abraham goes home and he tells Sarah, he's like, God says, oh, we're going to have kids. It can be like numerous as the stars. And the Bible says, Sarah heard that, heard the word of the Lord and laughed and then came up with the worst idea in human history. I can't have kids, but the maid can. So go be with her. And you know what Abraham does? Okay. 
So don't think that Abraham was a super holy guy. He had issues. And the crazy thing is God had the promise in mind. Sarah was going to bear a son just like God said. He didn't need Abraham's help. He didn't need Abraham's efforts. He didn't need Abraham's strategic ideas. And so Abraham ends up with two sons, a son from Sarah, the free woman, as the Bible calls her, and the son of Hagar, the slave woman, as the Bible calls her. And Hagar has Ishmael, and Sarah has Isaac. And those two brothers of that one father, who were both partakers of an everlasting covenant that God gave to Abraham and to his children, those two brothers are still fighting today. And you see it on the news every night. They're bombing each other like crazy, even today. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is there will be no diplomatic peace. The only peace that's going to come is when they see Jesus, when they get a revelation of who Jesus is, and they get a revelation of who they are, and this internal sibling rivalry comes to an end. And uh, uh, so, so God gives an everlasting promise to a faulty guy, Abraham. And, you know, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, he didn't do anything righteous. All he did was heard God and go, yeah, I believe that. Didn't say he understood it. Didn't say it made any sense to him. He just heard what God said that made no sense at all and went, Okay. And, you know, that's really all it takes to step into an identity of righteousness is to just hear what God says and agree with it, whether you understand or not. So when God says that you're his child, that you're redeemed, that you're pure, that you're righteous, and that you're holy, you may not understand how, and you may not understand why, and all you and I have a responsibility to do in that moment is go, okay, I don't understand, but it's true. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, from Abraham, you get, uh, you get some kids that end up becoming a great nation. And for 430 years, after God gave that covenant promise, Israel grows up into millions. And, and now you've got a guy named Moses, and he's leading the children of Israel. And, and the children of Israel get a hold of something called the law. What they do is they reject a union with God. God invites them to a place of union where he calls them priests and kings. That happens in Exodus 19. But they reject that, and instead what they get is a relationship with God based on rules, and it's called the law. That law holds for 1,300 years, and during that time, Israel, the children of God, Israel profanes God's name over and over again. Now, you think, well, if you're going to profane the name of God, you're going to drag God through the mud, and you're going to do all this unrighteous stuff, that would certainly disqualify you from ever walking in righteousness, purity, and holiness again. But God's intention is to redeem us back to himself, not by our works, but purely by his grace. All right? So I want you to pick up with me. Having that as a foundation, pick up with me in Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to jump to, uh, let's see, we're going to go to, hmm, how much farther, 2023, 20, he says, I will sanctify 
my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations will know I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. I want you to stop and think about what God just said. Saying, you guys are a mess. You guys are a train wreck. But I'm going to show the nations who I am. And you know how I'm going to do it? I am going to show myself holy in you before the world. Read this again with me. Israel has done everything wrong. Israel has lived an unholy existence. And this is what God says. He says, the nations shall know I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. In other words, I'm going to show up in you as holy. Now, now what is the deal with God deciding to live inside of an unholy people as a demonstration of his nature? What God is continually demonstrating is that we are saved purely by his grace. And so when God shows up, let's say you, have, you feel like you've disqualified yourself in life. You've had so many issues, burnt so many bridges, you messed up so many times that, that you've completely tanked your witness. Then you are kind of like Israel in this moment. And God says over you, I'm going to show how strong I am by showing up holy in you before the eyes of people who have written you off. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 24, I will take from among you or from among the nations, take you out from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. A lot of prophetic imagery there. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Remember, Jesus called himself the water of life, right? Sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I want you to see a, a two words that are really important as we go through this, and they're the words, I will. I will. Everything that's happening here is his doing. He's going to do it, right? It's not the, the, anything that they do. It's all his work. Take a look at what he does now here. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit. Everybody say new spirit. New spirit. Whoa. Woo. <laughs> I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, verse 27, he's cranking it up. Look, I will put my spirit within you. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. In the verse before, he says, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And I guess by verse 27, he decides to tell you what he's putting in you. Oh, should I tell him? I'm going to put a new spirit in you. Should I tell him? I'm going to put my spirit in you. This is what I'll call the promise of the spirit. This is the promise of the Spirit. Isn't the, hasn't the Spirit already been given to man? It was. That's how we got created. God breathed into man the breath of life. His breath is his Spirit. But man rejects that breath. It's almost like, it's almost like rejecting the Holy Spirit and then holding your breath and, and insulating yourself from the things of the Spirit. Do people still do that today? Yes. In the Spirit, they do. 
A lot of people, even within the church, don't believe in the gifts, the moving, or the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost like we believe in the message of the gospel as a ticket to heaven when we die. Thanks, Jesus, for that. But that's been the salvation message many people have heard. You receive Jesus, and then you can go to heaven when you die. But understand, heaven is not the point. It never has been the point. Jesus has always been the point. A heaven without Jesus would be hell. But the reality is, is Jesus didn't save you for your afterlife. He saved you for your whole life, including right now. So when he says, I will put my spirit in you, he's not saying prepare yourself so you can go to heaven when you die. He's saying, I'm going to bring heaven to you. I'm going to bring everything you need. That's why the Bible says we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, and we've been given the Holy Spirit without measure. So here's another part of this. Let's go back to the I will. He says, I will put my spirit within you. Now, listen, in preaching, Sean and I, Libby and I, we, we, can't, we can't get up here preach and teach and, and, and Christine singing and leading and all. And I, I, we can't get up here and we can't say things that can make you get filled with the Holy Spirit. You are not going to get the Holy Spirit from Sean or me or any other person. I will not put the Holy Spirit in you. He will put his Spirit in you. Understand that you're not going to get the Holy Spirit from another man. You're going to get the Holy Spirit from one man, Jesus Christ. And his promise, the promise of the Spirit is that I will put my Spirit in you. And when you think of the Holy Spirit and you think of your unholy humanity, you automatically, somehow religion gets into your head that you're disqualified from being filled with the Spirit. But we've just read in the Old Covenant how God looks at a profane people and says, I'm going to show myself great by showing up holy in you. So I'm going to put my spirit in you even when you think you're disqualified. This is why when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't get proud about it. This is why when you see somebody filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't put them on a pedestal as if they've done everything right. A human being filled with the Holy Spirit of God is not a demonstration of human discipline and perfection. It's a demonstration of the grace of a good father. <laughs> to fill worthless clay vessels with an unimaginable holy treasure. That is God himself. This is all prophetically woven throughout the scripture. You guys remember the first time Jesus ever did a miracle? Uh, it happens at a wedding. It happens at a party. And Jesus shows up at this wedding, and, and they run out of wine. And it's not because they spilled it on the ground. It's because they drank it all. And so Jesus' mom rolls up to Jesus and goes, hey, we need more wine. And Jesus is like, oh, are you kidding? Seriously, do you not understand? 2,000 years from now, 
There are entire denominations that are going to be still arguing about this. This is going to create so many problems. I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus literally pushes back on it and goes, hey, my hour is not coming. In other words, this is, this is not the time and this is not the place for me to begin my ministry. And she doesn't even continue the conversation. She turns her attention to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And she walks off, drops the mic and walks off. And Jesus goes, apparently we're beginning the ministry now. So this is what Jesus does. He's going to do his first miracle, and that is make a lot of wine for drunk people. Stop and think about that for half a second, right? And so Jesus looks around, he sees, the Bible says, six pots of water. Six is the number of man. These are just worthless clay pots, but they're large pots, and they're full of water. And the Bible says they're water for purification. You know why? That purification was, you don't have running water in Israel in those days. So when you got a big party coming in, they're coming in from the dust of the day and the dirt of the day, and they've got dust and dirt on their hands and on their feet. And so to step into the party, what they do is they wash their hands and feet in the water set aside for purification. It was a hand-washing station. Six big clay pots filled with hand-washing water. And so what happens? Every person who's come into that, whatever they've been stepping in, whatever they've been, you know, touching, they're now washing in the same water. I mean, by the time you get the whole wedding party in there, that water's probably like quicksand, right? And so, so Jesus goes and looks at those pots and goes, see those pots over there? Top them off. Not pour them out, not clean them out. Take what's already in there and just make sure there's no empty space. In other words, fill them up. That dirty, filthy water that everybody in the parties had their hands in. And then Jesus looks at the head, head waiter and goes, uh, draw out. Just draw out of one of those pots and take it to the guy in charge of the party and tell him to drink it because Jesus is funny that way. You imagine this guy, he's probably like, you want me to feed hand-washing water to the guy in charge of this whole shindig? And he draws out, and when he hands it to the guy and he drinks it, he's like, that's the best wine we've ever had. And what Jesus does is he symbolically uses his first miracle to talk about this right here. And that is that I'm going to take worthless-looking humanity that's filled with, with junk from, from the baggage of every sin you can even begin to imagine, and all we're going to do is fill up all the empty space and then take everything in you and turn it into something that is beyond belief. He says, I will fill you with my spirit. Now, listen, you may be going, okay, I've, I've been saved, but I don't understand the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to talk about next. So turn with me to Galatians, because the promise comes all the way back here from the beginning of time, the breath of God. In the middle of the law, he says, I'll fill you with my spirit. God gave the promise to Abraham. Abraham didn't fully understand it. He gave the promise to Israel. Israel didn't fully understand it, and now the promise continues to come down. And now we get to the book of Galatians, and Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 10. I want to read for you just a few verses and talk to you about them. 
says, for as many as are of the works of the law, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, when you lived by the law, everything about your righteousness was based on what you do, right? And now in verse 11, it says that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does, does them shall ha, uh, live by them. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, Christ has redeemed. Everybody say redeemed. Redeemed, redeemed us from the curse of the law. And the curse, by the way, the curse of the law is whenever you would break the law in your works, you received the punishment or the consequence of having broken the law. So it was all about sowing and reaping. And now what... Paul says here in Galatians, he says, remember that old law-based system that your forefathers lived under? Christ has come to redeem us, listen, not from the law, from the curse of the law. Okay, so people are like, wait a minute. He didn't redeem us from the law. He redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. You know what he had left intact? The blessings of the law. The law contained both blessings and curses. And when it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, it doesn't say that he eliminated the blessings of the law. The blessings remain but come to you by grace, not by your actions. So it's purely a gift of Christ. But he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. So now we don't live by sowing and reaping. As a matter of fact, you know, to say, well, if I do something wrong as a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm done, right? No, 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But then it goes on to say this. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even when you try to introduce something back into the jar of clay, his grace cleans you up faster than you can mess yourself up. So because his grace is bigger, faster, stronger, and power, more powerful than your sin. So even when we do something that is, that is displeasing to the heart of the Father, when we bring that to him and say, Father, I messed up, he restores the standard and gives you your innocence, restores your innocence back to you. Now, it's foolish to sin with the intention of repenting, like I can mess myself up for a while, and then I'll just go and get forgiven. Because here's the thing, a lot of times people think of this as like, well, I could just live like I want to, and then I'll just go and get forgiven. Here's the reason only, the only reason that people do that is because they've treating, they're treating the goodness and the grace of God as like a legal document. Instead of understanding that the power of the grace of God gives you and I the freedom to live free from the bondage of sin. So it's not like grace is like, oh, good, I can go back into bondage whenever I want to. Once you've truly tasted grace, why would you ever want to be in chains again? The Bible says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't be entangled again with any yoke of slavery or bondage again. Now I'm totally free. And if you ever come close to a chain in the, in the things of the, the realm of this world, what happens? Well, I find myself in chains again. Jesus. And what does he do? He frees us and restores the standard of our innocence. Why? Because his righteousness is your identity. 
right? The more you see how strong his grace is, the less you're attracted to the weakness of sin. Okay? We're not attracted to weak things. And if the devil can convince you that sin is the stronger force, you'll always find it a little bit attractive. But when you begin to realize that sin is like a paper chain, it's like the grace of God is so much more powerful. The strength of that grace becomes the attractive embrace of the Father's heart that pulls us in and sees, says, see, in me, you're free. Not in that, in me. Right? All right, so let's go on. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That, and listen to this, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham. Everybody say Abraham. Abraham. The blessing, listen, this is the promise that God gave to Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. That's every human being out there who's not qualified to be an Israelite or a Jew. They're included in this as well because God is grafting us all together into one new man. But don't think that you're an outsider because, oh, they're the children of God and you're not. In Christ, we're all brought together into one new man. And so it says here, the promise that came to Abraham comes upon the Gentiles in Christ, listen to this, that we might receive what? The same thing he talked about in Ezekiel 36, the promise of the Spirit through faith. The same thing he said to Israel. In other words, even in your worst state, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. That promise that he's going to do that work is yours and mine right here in verse 14. He goes on down in verse 15. It says, Brethren, I speak in a manner of men. Though it's only a man's covenant, yet it's if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What does that mean? He's saying, guys, what we're talking about here is a covenant promise. And he says, do you understand that once a covenant is made, it cannot be added to. It can't be added to. It can't be taken away from. It is established and it is forever. The only way that you can deal with a covenant that's broken is to make a new one. And Israel continually broke God's covenant over and over and over again. So this is what Paul's about to say something here. If you catch it, it'll blow your tires out. Verse 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made, were promises made. When you think of Abraham and his seed, you think of Abraham and his children. And that's the way it had been interpreted for hundreds and hundreds of years. Paul is about to give a new interpretation to an old understanding that is going to blow the minds of every person that reads this who is an Israelite, especially somebody who understands the law. It says, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. It says, he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, to your seed, who is Christ. Now, what is the deal with that? Paul is telling these people, God gave a promise to Abraham. And the promise is not nullified because of the failure of Abraham's kids. It's upheld because the promise was not to Abraham's seeds, all his children. It was to Abraham's seed, which is one person, 
and that is Christ. And Christ, on behalf of all of us, the vicarious man, on behalf of all of us, perfectly obeyed the law, completely fulfilled the covenant, stepped into the sacrificial system to shut it down by his own perfect blood, brought you and I onto the cross with him, into the grave with him, and out of the grave with him to raise up in newness of life in resurrection power so that every person beyond the resurrection is wide open to receive the promise of the Spirit. Well, there's where we're going to have to stop. But listen, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you don't realize that you have access to that or you feel unworthy, listen, Jesus has made you worthy, right? You don't have to fear that God's going to withhold his Spirit from you. Just simply ask him, Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me with all of you. Fill all of me with all of you and teach me how to hear your voice. Teach me how to respond to your presence. I tell you what, he will start to move in you with his peace, his joy, the righteousness and peace and joy of the kingdom of God will start to move in the spirit through you. And uh, all kinds of good things come with that. So listen, you can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Once again, Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, five six two five eight go to vanderbushministries.com if you'd like to support this podcast and this ministry and just click on the give button there thank you so much so much to so many of you who have just lately come it's like out of nowhere to say we want to partner with what you're saying and what you're doing it means more than you can imagine listen this is bill vanderbush from all of us here at faith mountain ministries until next time may the grace and peace of our lord jesus christ be with you all